Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmitz. I'm here with Tony Reinders. We're at Tendril Wines in Carlton. It's July 31st, 2020. Tony, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, first question and most important for what we're doing here today is why wine? Yes. Uh, well, first, I just wanted to correct you. The official name for the brand is Tender Wine Cellars. Tender Wine Cellars, I'm sorry. That's okay. But Tender Wines does work. So just being a stickler uh, for posterity, shall we say. Um, yeah. So, uh, and to get on to your question about why wine, um, <clears throat> I, I guess I would consider myself pretty fortunate because. Um, because I, I guess things were pulling me in that direction, you know, for for a good long time. So um, just a little background. So I hail from the great winemaking state of Wisconsin. Go Badgers! And uh, not a place that people associate with wine. So I'm actually it's a little tongue in cheek there, but um, but it's. For me, um, I started working when I was, you know, pretty young. I was in my teens. I was 16 years old, first job, and it was actually working at a restaurant. And my brother, who's three years my senior, uh, was there, was working at the same place. So that's how I got the job. I walked in, filled the application up. You know, they hired me almost immediately because he was a good worker. And uh, so anyhow, I got hired as a dishwasher. So I was washing dishes for a couple of years. My brother had kind of proceeded to being a cook, and so I kind of followed in that path and. So started cooking uh, pretty early on and I learned from a chef who was pretty old school you know not really there weren't recipes or anything like that you just had to watch and observe and learn and I progressed uh, you know I guess up the food chain literally um, pretty quickly and you know within a couple of years I was I was you know one of the head chef or one of the you know main chefs line cooks and <clears throat> The reason I bring this up is that, I mean, so that's not a direct wine association, but um, but that experience was, was very important, and, and I'll touch on it in a moment. Um, so then when, when I went to college, I actually got my undergraduate degree from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and so, which is local college, so, you know, in-state tuition, all that was good, coming from a blue-collar family. and. Uh, but I, and I had to work as well, so I, I cooked, I bartended, I, uh, I also worked in a, a retail shop that sold wine, and so those were a couple of exposures to wine early on. And then my first job out of college, real job if you will, was uh, was working for a food company, actually a cannery in eastern Washington. And so I went from Madison, Wisconsin to Dayton, Washington, population like 2,000 people in the middle of flipping nowhere. And it was like, talk about a time warp. I mean, I'm like 22 years old maybe and, you know, drove west in the middle of winter and on bald tires and had a few little, you know, fun little excursions, shall we say. But uh, anyhow, but wound up out there. And, and one of the things I had going for me is that I knew, uh, I had tried Washington wine and I actually liked it. And Washington wine in those days, this was in the mid 80s, uh, was kind of not really that well known. And, but I had tried it and I liked it. And so, um, you know, so I was actually pretty bored. So for the three years I was out there, um, I 
I would go to wineries as kind of a social outlet. I got to know a few people, um, and I had, like, I, I like to jokingly refer to my first midlife crisis at age 25, uh, and so I, I pitched that job. I was living with a, a woman at the time who wanted to go to Europe, and so uh, we had saved money over those three years, and so went to Europe. <clears throat> And uh, we actually had departed from the Bay Area and wound up returning there. And so when I got back after that, you know, backpack trip and, and uh, really, you know, it was really a lot of fun. We saw a lot of stuff. Um, but I wound up in the Bay Area in, I want to say, December, January time frame, and I was looking for work. And uh, just rifling through the want ads, and lo and behold, I found uh, an opening at a winery in San Jose. Uh, the winery is called Mirasu. And at that point in time, it was actually owned by real people. It's actually a big a brand of Gallo now. Um, so I latched on there as a lab tech. So I was uh, I had a I had a degree in microbiology, and so that's they hired me as such. I and I will start out by saying I didn't want to do that work at all. I hated microbiology, actually working in labs and stuff. But it was I viewed it as a way to kind of get my foot in the door, and that worked. And then after about six months of doing that, I kind of conned the cellar master <laughs> into making me an intern, so junior winemaker type. And uh, so I did that for a year. And about halfway through that experience where I was out in the cellar for, for that full year, um, I decided, yeah, this is what I want to do. And that's the way I've always been. Uh, you know, for me, any type of work, endeavor, I, I mean, you know, we all get those questions in college, uh, you know, what do you want to do when you get big and all that kind of stuff. And for me, I, I just like, I have no idea because I have to actually do the work in order to know whether or not it's a good fit. That's the way my my brain or my, you know, where the way it works for me. Um, and so anyhow, I liked it. <clears throat> so I applied to uh, UC Davis, uh, took the GREs uh, and uh, and ultimately got in there with some endorsements from some folks there. Like I said, it was a very small program at the time. I think it probably still is. Uh, you know, we were less than a dozen students, and it was really cool because people were coming from all different professions, all walks of life, and so it was a, even though it was a small group, it was fairly diverse, and uh, that was cool. And so I stuck to it and ultimately did graduate. Uh, that was important to me. Um, and it was, and part of the reason I went there was because uh, I viewed it as probably the place to go if indeed you wanted to fast track getting it to become a winemaker. And so that's what I wanted to be. And, uh, and I also wanted to do some traveling, some overseas work. And at this point in time, which would have been the late 80s, early 90s, it wasn't like super common. I mean, people would do it, would do overseas internships, but um, but not not everybody, and not like now. I mean, now it's pretty common. If you if you don't do some kind of overseas experience, people look at you sideways, like there's something wrong. And so uh, so anyhow, I, I worked in Italy, two vintages. I worked in Australia, um, and actually came to Oregon for my first gig, which was in 1994 and 1995. Uh, by way of Australia, of all places. So uh, Brian Crozer, who was the founding partner of uh, Argyle here in the Willamette Valley, um, his, one of his uh, winemakers, junior winemakers, was one of my uh, classmates at UC Davis. So I got to know him there <coughs> and met Crozer, and I was like hitting up my buddy. I was like, hey, what about me? Like, can I go work in Australia? That'd be cool. And uh, so anyhow, that worked out. And so I did a good job for, for Brian. And when I was actually exiting and chatting with him a little bit, he's like, yeah, you should talk to Rollin. 
at Argyle, you know, he needs an assistant winemaker. And I was like, okay. So, uh, so I got back to the U.S. I had already gotten had another gig lined up to go to Italy, uh, my second one, and uh, talked to Rollin, and I'll, I'll never forget. I, I called him up, and I was like, Rollin, you know, this is, this is my name's Tony, and I work for Brian, blah blah blah. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, and um, it's like so. Uh, so yeah, he says you need an assistant winemaker, and then there's like a pause, and he's like, "What?" You know, and I'm like, uh, "Yeah, well, that's what he told me, man." You know, and so obviously you guys haven't talked. He's like, "Well, yeah, I don't know, maybe, uh, you know." And then I told him I was going to Italy, and he's like, "Well, give me a call when you get back." You know, it's like, "Okay, I'll do that." And so got back, called him, and he's and I, you know, resumed the conversation. He's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, come on up," you know. So I was like, "So anyhow, I was at Argyle." Uh, for about a year and a half, um, and you know, I just I was looking for more. I kind of wanted to. I was looking for opportunities. One presented itself up, up, up in Washington, so I, I found my way back up to Washington, and I worked at the Hogue Cellars as a as a winemaker. So I went from assistant winemaker to winemaker, and uh, a lot more responsibility, bigger winery. And I was there for about three years, and then. Uh, was kind of you know getting a little antsy and uh and so looking around for some work and i anticipated that my next job would be down in california because you know there wasn't a ton of opportunities in washington and honestly i was kind of wanting to go somewhere else and oregon i didn't even consider because it's just so small here and there's just there aren't that many jobs so i interviewed for some jobs had a few opportunities uh, some that i passed on and I remember I was at, at, and in those days they had this little yellow paper um, that would come out monthly called Wine Country Classifies, I think it was. And so that's, that was like the, the job paper thing. And, uh, and so I kind of looked through it. And there was like this, this giant ad, it was probably a, a whole page uh, of, of four pages. And, uh, and just like talking about this position in Oregon, you know, it's like, you know, prestigious winery, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm just like, just reading it, it's like, holy crap, this sounds great, you know? And, uh, you know, but didn't mention the winery or anything. So blind box, I, I sent my resume and kind of forgot about it. And uh, I don't know, a couple weeks later, you know, they had an intercom at Hogue, you know, Tony Riders, line one, you know, so I go to my desk and pick up the phone and, you know, it's like, uh, it's like this guy's on the phone. He's like, yeah, my name's uh, Ken Evanstead. Uh, this is Ken Evanstead. You know, it's like, Ken Evanstead, Ken Evanstead, who the hell is that? You know, and, uh, and then, you know, it, my brain was working uh, slowly, but it worked. And uh, you know, and also I was like, oh yeah, you know. And then, then I remembered when I was here at Argyle, I actually roomed with Ken Wright's salesperson at the time. And through Ken, I met the Evansteads a couple of times. And so they knew of me, and I knew of them. And uh, anyhow, they were looking for a winemaker. And so came down, interviewed for the job, and you know, they hired me pretty much on the spot. And uh, so. He was able to pick up that gig, and so that was the that was the first opportunity for me to completely hold the reins as the head winemaker at a winery, and so that was that was cool. Um, and little tiny shithole of a winery, actually, it's about two blocks from here. Uh, it's called the Rock Block Building, and recently they've, I think, invested you know probably 15 or 20 million dollars or something. So it's a nicer building. Now. Uh, I wish they would have done it at the time. That would have been cool because it was. It was like the equivalent of like pig pen. So every time the the log trucks would round the corner, it's like like this dust would would come sprinkling from the rafters, and you know we didn't have any hot water. And I mean, but it was it was very uh, had a lot of personality. I think is what they say in the in the real estate business. And uh, so they were, I was there for three or four years. The first year, 
uh, you know, kind of crossed paths with Ken. So he continued to make his eponymous Ken Wright Sellers. So at that point in time, this was in 1998, so his brand would have been four years old, I think. He started Ken Wright Sellers in 94. And, uh, <clears throat> and Ken was always nice to me. He was a good guy. And so, I, you know, I look forward to that opportunity. And so we just kind of worked side by side that first year and, you know, decided, you know, I'd look after the domain screen stuff, which was very small, a couple thousand cases, that's it, in those days. And Serene started in 90, I think, was the first vintage, and Ken was the, the winemaker of record for those years. And so we kind of, like I said, cohabitated that in 98. And then uh, and then starting in 99 forward, I, uh, I was, he actually built his winery just, you know, across the parking lot here and, uh, in 1999. And yes, yeah, so we were we were reminiscing the other day about pushing his press in the middle of uh, Highway 47 uh, <laughs> across the street here. So that was that was fun. Um, I think we've embellished a little bit over the years, but you know there was like some kind of talk about riding the press, but I don't know what it. But anyhow, um, so that was that was cool. So we're, I was there for about you know in Carlton here through the 2000 vintage, and then in 2001 for that vintage. Um, the owners of Domain Serene purchased a property, which is now, you know, where their mega complex of, uh, of structures is located in the Dundee Hills. And, uh, and it, it was a very formative period of time for me because uh, over a 10-year period of time where I was the head winemaker, um, I was able to be, you know, a significant part of that, that brand growing 15-fold in a 10-year period of time. And, you know, just kind of trashed a lot of the record books as far as, you know, one of the things that often doesn't happen in this business is when you're, when you have a fairly aggressive growth curve in front of you to increase quality at the same time is almost unheard of. And especially through the addition of very young vineyards, 2002 was kind of a pivotal year for me because that was a year where three of the five vineyards that at the time were the core vineyards for Domain Serene came online. So Jerusalem Hill came online, Winery Hill came online, and uh, what else came online? Um, oh, uh, Two Barns. And Two Barns was, I, I believe they now own it. Um, so anyhow, those three vineyards were very important, but to have a lot of young fruit coming into the program that 100% hit the bullseye and was, went into high-end wines was, uh, I, I was very proud of that um, fact. And so, made a lot of noise over that period of time, introduced the, in the second year of my tenure, um, kind of talked them into starting a Syrah project. I thought that would have been a great idea. And I, I kind of had Syrah fever coming from Washington. It was kind of a new grape variety up there at the time. And uh, so I wanted to keep my fingers in something uh, that was like completely me. And so that was what that project was about. And uh, don't know if it's still made, hard to say. Um, I'm not on the Christmas card list anymore, you know, so uh, what can you say? Um, so anyhow, uh, so that was, uh, like I said, a very pivotal period of time. Um, I stayed on until 2008 when I decided that I, I was just looking for another challenge. Things got a little crazy. I mean, literally, my first day of work at Domain Serene, the owners like flew in from Minnesota and I still vividly remember like going to Staples and you know with a good little grocery cart and throwing a fax machine in and what color pens do you want and you know like just like that was my first day and it was just like and then going to, to the Rock Block building and uh, just kind of you know just trying to figure it out you know it was just kind of this this you know little space the time forgot sort of thing and then not really knowing that there was like this giant tidal wave you know that was coming behind it, it was like the calm before the storm almost so serene is almost ironic as a name um, 
<laughs> so uh, anyhow, but it was a great ride. It accomplished a lot. You know, very proud of it. I mean, to actually, you know, take a brand from three offerings to probably when I left, not including Rock Block, you know, probably somewhere between 20 or 25 different offerings each and every year, um, to put your, not only your fingerprints, but, you know, to put your DNA into this whole thing uh, was really cool. And again, like I said, I learned a lot. Helped me kind of crack the code, if you will, for how to do things well and do things consistently here in the Willamette Valley. And so I had a very strong point of view, I guess, by the time my time there was, was finished. And so I was ready for the next challenge. And it got a little goofy, you know, but literally I was the first employee. Like I said, I'm, I already touched on my first day. And uh, but over the next 10 years, I mean, they probably hired 25 people or something, you know, and it's like, and they probably hired 2,500 people now. So, um, but it was, it was time to sort of tap out and, and look for the next challenge. And so I had wanted to start my own brand, um, <clears throat> which wound up being Tendril. And I also wanted to uh, do some custom winemaking, so that was important to me. So while I didn't have anything lined up at all, um, I actually um, was quickly able to find a couple of suckers, I guess, if uh, you know, for lack of a better term, that were willing to take a, take a flyer on me. And, you know, it's an interesting experience when you leave a position where you've done a fair amount and let's say it's a fairly high profile position because, and it's not, actually the position doesn't matter so much, but whatever you've done historically no longer really matters. So it's not really relevant. And so you have to restart, it's like rebirth of sorts, which I was completely fine with um, because I was confident in my abilities, uh, but, but it's actually sobering, you know, and uh, there isn't much in this business that is, but that was, you know, and, and it's like, so it was cool. and. But I wanted to use it as kind of a, a bit of a blank slate. You know, I'm a little different than I think a lot of people in that I seek out uh, challenges, I guess, you know? It's like, I, what I didn't want to do is the same thing that I had just done, because to me that was boring and I had already been there and done that. And one of the main things that was part of the program at the time, which I can only imagine is still, is a, a series of single vineyard wines. And, and when you think about it, that's what every, I mean, throughout the world, that's pretty much what every winery, how they want you to experience Pinot Noir, is they want you to look at it through a single vineyard lens. And that's actually a mindset that, that we inherited from the folks in Burgundy, because that's kind of how they're, they're, they force themselves to do that. And now here we've elected to do that because we think that that's how people best want to experience Pinot Noir. And I guess what I would say on that is that um, it certainly can work wonderfully, but it doesn't always. And, and so I guess that was kind of what the, the realization that I came to. In, in 2001, so three years into my tenure at Domain Serene, or fourth vintage, shall we say, you know, um, I had already established some single vineyard wines. And that was a year where I had to go back to the ownership and say, listen, you know, this is a, it's a good vintage, but the individuality of the sites is not there. So this is not a year to do single vineyard wines. And oh my goodness, they hemmed and hawed. And, uh, <laughs> it's like they, th there was uh, a lot of uh, concern about that. But I dug in my heels and ultimately, you know, kind of won that little battle. And that, I, it was the right thing to do because we made better wines for the two main anchor products that we that we were making and or that I was making. And uh, and ultimately, forewent doing single vineyard wines that year. And that was actually something that I guess I carried forward because that was the first time over that ten-year run that I, you know, didn't do that. And but it was like 
it was kind of empowering, but it was also important, like it, to see the response in the marketplace because people respected that decision, you know. And then ultimately, I, I would hope that the owners did too, but don't really know. Didn't have much of a conversation on that. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at here is that I I didn't want to um, shackle myself to. I mean, like I said, the kind of the common look. The way that people showcase or want to present to you Pinot Noir from from brand X is, you know, here's at least a half a dozen single vineyard wines, and we've got our lower tier Willamette Valley blah blah, and then we maybe we have our super ninja swill this guy, you know, and so this is at a higher price point, and then, but the majority is the single vineyard offerings and. Invariably, every time that I've sat down and done those tastings where they're horizontal tastings, so you taste across a vintage for a particular brand, um, there's always some that don't deliver. And that's particularly with single vineyard ones. And if you think about it, the, the whole single vineyard concept is a little skewed where we as winemakers almost force ourselves to be successful with one hand tied behind our back because we're working with minuscule amounts of grapes from usually one little section of a vineyard, of a greater vineyard. And we're kind of we're literally putting all of our eggs into one basket and and trying to actually come up with a profound, compelling expression of Pinot Noir. And in the the fact that I've been doing this now here in the Willamette Valley for more than 25 years, it's it's actually again I, I feel I feel knowledgeable to the extent that not every year is a single vineyard. There's this compression. There's like an accordion effect, is what I like to call it, where in cooler and warmer vintages, there's almost like a compression of individuality from sites that take place. And then there's other years where the accordion is actually pulled out more. And those are the years that are single vineyards. And I've seen them, you know, and I can tell you certain vintages that were like 100% where every little bit and piece was different. Mm -hmm. And that's like super cool. But I guess I'm here to tell you that to my experience, it doesn't happen every year. And so what I wanted to do was to put together a lineup of wines for Tendril uh, and present them in a fashion that I don't believe had been done before. And so over six years, I created five Pinot Noirs that are, it's, it's a really cool lineup, but it's, it's a, uh, the way I describe it is as a five course meal of Pinot Noir. And so the, the meal would start, if you will, with a 100% uh, white barrel fermented white Pinot Noir, and uh, they progress through four red Pinot Noirs that essentially have incredible range and diversity as far as what they present. We use some winemaking inputs, if you will, to differentiate the lineup. You know, oak is, is certainly a factor. A whole cluster fermentation is something that I really started investigating in earnest starting in 2011. And so one of those offerings is 100% whole cluster. One has about 35 or 40%. And then the other two, one is a rotational single vineyard. So I haven't uh, sort of flipped my middle, proverbial middle finger to the whole concept of single vineyard, but I didn't want to rely on it so heavily. And so what I do is of the 10 or maybe 12 vineyard sites that we work with on an annual basis for Tendril, I allow all 12 of those, or all, all of those vineyards to audition, if you will, for our single vineyard slot. So it's kind of a prized um, position, you know, and, and it's something to be celebrated. And I think, to me, that makes sense. That's how a single vineyard should be to me. It should over-deliver like all wine should, but if that's the only way that I know how to do it, is to let the cream literally rise to the top and pick the best. 2016 was a different year for us because I actually had two vineyards that I really liked, so I did two. So, you know, I'm not like a strict rule setter, but I'm an opportunist. So I saw two 
vineyards that were so different from each other and so interesting and compelling in and of themselves that we expanded the lineup that year. But that's the only time I've done it so far. But I think it's cool. And then, you know, those vineyards may show up in, I mean, the, the other thing about Tendril is that four out of the five offerings, so the one that's not identified as the single vineyard, they have their own fanciful names that we have trademarked and that are ours. So it, it's, uh, the goal here is to offer a very strong point of connectivity with our wines. And the other, I would say, um, unfortunate side effect of single vineyard wines is that when you're working with a, a vineyard, a particular vineyard, there's probably at least 10 or 12 other wineries that work with that same site. So if there's 10 or 12 single vineyards from a particular vineyard, it, it actually creates confusion. It's brand confusion for the vineyard, it's brand confusion for the actual brand. And what oftentimes I found with consumers is that there's like, oh yeah, I like, I like Vineyard X, you know, that's my jam. And, uh, but it's from producer Y. And it's like, well, then I tried Vineyard X from producer Z, and you know what? It wasn't as good. I don't really like it that much. And, and it's like, well, that's because they're getting different grapes and they're different winemakers and blah, blah, blah. You know, so, you know, so, but if I have an extrovert, which I do, and now I have a pretender and I have a C note and I have a tightrope, there's only one of those out there. And so you don't even have to remember my brand name, which is Tendril, which I'll touch on that in a moment because that is something that um, haunts me a little bit, unfortunately. <laughs> um, because, well, so, it's another opportunity for people to, to connect. And so mm -hmm. if you like tightrope, you don't have to remember anything else. And I've even like color coded the label. So there's a progression as far as the label lineup intentionally, because as I found out, whenever people enjoy wine, guess what? There's alcohol involved. And what happens when we have alcohol? Sometimes we just don't pay attention. We're having so much fun. And so, but people can remember color. Color is actually a strong imprint for people. So I have people who come to the tasting room here and it's like, oh yeah, you know, I, I had your wine the other night with dinner. It's like your Pinot Noir. It's like, that's great. I make five. And uh, it's like, uh, you know, do you remember what it was? Oh, oh yeah, no, it was Tendril. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> that's, that's good. Um, so do you remember the color of the label? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was maroon. It's like, okay, well, that was a tightrope. And then, so when was this? And then I can back to this. It's like, oh, that was the 14 tightrope. And, you know, <laughs> and would you like to buy some more? So, uh, so touching on tendril, I should probably get my visual aid because uh, I know it bothers Andrew, our tasting room uh, manager, because uh, it's kind of a very simple tool. But do you want to, should I go get sure? Okay. Whenever you're ready. Thank you. All right, so uh, I guess I wanted to just uh, not only touch on, but, but you know, embrace the topic of uh, the name that I've chosen for, uh, for our brand, which is Tendril. And the number one question I get from, well, I ask people, everyone who comes, because I've learned over time that virtually no one knows what a Tendril is, so, which is really makes me a little sad. Um, but it's funny because people in the industry come up to me, it's like, that's such a great name. Oh my God, I can't believe it. It was available you got the trade you know it's like yeah 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 it's great you know and then uh, and then it falls flat when you find out that nobody knows what it is so um, so what this is is this is a shoot off of a grapevine pruning that, that we did uh, oh a couple of years ago in the winter time so what happens in the life cycle of a vineyard is that they and we can go use a visual aid over here if you want but 
um, is that they go from green to woody or lignified in a one-year period. And so um, if this was actually attached to the fruiting cane itself, and it was green, there would be clusters down here. There would be always a leaf or a branch opposite. And then as you go up the chute, you get into these little suckers, which are called tendrils. And so tendrils are actually the attachment vehicle or appendage, if you will, of a grapevine and all climbing plants. They're actually pretty important. Um, and the other thing that I learned just a few years ago, and again, we're always learning, or I feel like I always am, um, is that these clusters and this tendril are related to each other. And essentially, this, this uh, grape cluster, this imaginary grape cluster that's here, um, is a tendril without the grapes, or with the grapes. So tendrils are, are essentially, they differentiate back and forth. When the plant has a lot of energy, it creates fruit or grapes. And then when it feels like it has less energy, the tendrils revert to just this kind of uh, curly Q structure that grabs on, latches on, and pulls the, the vines up. And so. Uh, one could argue, and I often do, that without the tendrils, the, you know, the fruit would go down and, and essentially it would be subject to small animals and small children coming by eating all the grapes. And so without the lowly tendril, we would have no wine. And so it's super important. And it also differentiates, I, I can only imagine that they're kind of high in stem cells and so they kind of go back and forth. I've seen times where there's like a barrier or two at the end of a tendril or maybe a little leaf and it's kind of cool to see what they do. Every one of them is unique and different. But I chose this name because that which is most important to me when it comes to making wine are about the grapes in the vineyards. And lastly, I would just say Tendril is not my last name. Um, that just sounds like kind of a naughty porn star kind of association. And um, Tendril has to do with the vineyards, and that's why I chose it. And it's very, you know, elegantly displayed on our sign as well as on our logo. You never considered changing your last name to Tendril? Yeah, it's come up, but uh, <laughs> maybe another day. Um, but the funny thing is, though, what I found is that when I ask people, does anyone know what a Tendril is? And there's usually blank stares and lots of ruffling of papers and, you know, just, oh, what's that? Um, shiny. Uh, is that um, once I tell them what it is, it's like, oh, yeah, that thing. Yeah, the Curly Q. It's like, so Curly Q probably would have been a better name. What can you do? But it is our brand, and you know, um, I, people do seem to be able to remember it, so that's always uh, important. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and then so anyhow, like present day, if you will. So, I started Tendril in 2008, so that was actually the same year of my departure to Main Serene. Um, made a very tiny amount of wine. It was actually the offering was the predecessor to what is now the Extrovert in our lineup, which is our kind of first release red Pinot Noir for any given vintage. And um, and then, like I said, over time, I, I slowly added to the lineup. We have, we added Chardonnay in 2011 to the lineup. And then uh, I've just done a new concept Chardonnay, uh, uh, almost three, uh, three years in barrel uh, expression of Chardonnay from the 2017 vintage, which we're very excited about. I also have a Cabernet. Uh, coming from a vineyard that I'm a, one of the founding members, founding partners, which is located over in Walla Walla. Uh, so with the Washington Association, when I started this phase of my career where I'm doing custom winemaking and, and uh, have my own little brands, I wanted to stay connected. I consider myself, or my base region, I guess, the Pacific Northwest. So I just find this very strong affinity for what's going on 
both in Washington and Oregon. And so I wanted to make that uh, an area of my focus. I've now expanded to California, so I, uh, I make wine down there as well. And uh, a very fun project called uh, Maggie Hawk. So, uh, so that's been, that's been great. And so I've added uh, some clients. So we have about uh, 10 folks for whom we make wine here in our small facility. So we're in our own little spot. We're in downtown Carleton. We moved here in September of, uh, of last year, 2019. And uh, we're able to do a harvest here. So it was a homecoming of sorts for me, separated by about 20 years, I guess, uh, coming back to Carleton, which was kind of goofy and you know interesting. And Carleton's changed a little bit. Uh, lots of you know irritated drivers who use our little area here as their runway. So uh, so it's a very popular um, you know back way to get through town. Um, but it was great to come back here and then uh, you know having Ken Wright as my neighbor it was a very uh, influential piece to our move and uh, you know we hope if uh, if things work out maybe we, we can make this our forever home. <laughs> We'll see. Um, but yeah, we have a small winery. We make between eight and 10,000 cases of wine a year, that's it. And Tendril is a very small brand. We're less than 1,000 cases. And in 2014, we added another uh, small brand to our lineup called Child's Play. Uh, I'm a sucker for double entendres. And so my wife and I have two beautiful children, two daughters, who are now 10 and 16. And, uh, but they, I mean, throughout, and any parent would probably agree, you know, they probably have, you know, drawings and pictures and artwork, you know, in drawers stuffed away that's, you know, reams and reams of it, right? So I wanted to figure out a way to embrace some of that because our daughters are, are pretty good artists, at least some of their stuff. And so Child's Play is embracing their contribution in the form of the artwork. So the master pieces, if you will, uh, which we've got. Uh, in our tasting room, actually, they were given to me framed for as a Christmas present uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, so those are all individual and coming from them. And then for us as winemakers, we get to play around a little bit too. And the brand is very complimentary of Tendril, so Tendril as a brand every one of the offerings spends at least 16 months of barrel so everything is over vintage which is very unusual in the Willamette Valley particularly when you're focused on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay but I am a firm believer in, in allowing adequate time for the wines to achieve full expression and integration and the textural contribution over those final six months or so in barrel I find are absolutely critical to the style of wines that we want to make here. So we've fully committed to that. Child's Play is completely opposite. So those wines get bottled within the first 10 months or so. And in the case of the rosé that we make, uh, we make a rosé Pinot Noir. It's only in the winery for maybe three months or so. So it's like just the polar opposite. So we're selling 19s from Child's Play in 18s and I think 17. And then for Tendril, we're selling 15s and 16s. So, um, so it actually, provides a lot of range in the lineup and the child's play wines are just you know beautiful representations that are different than what you would see in the tender lineup for <laughs> excuse me we do a chardonnay and a pinot noir and they couldn't be more different under the child's play lineup versus what's under tendril I want to back up to a second, a second here to your kind of first experience in, in a cellar. As you, what, what, what was it about winemaking? You mentioned you have to, you have to do something before you know if you like it or not. What was it about winemaking that appealed to you, and, and, and how did you kind of, how did you learn the skills you needed? Well, 
And so the, again, it was it was kind of like this intuitive like pull or draw. You know, as a as a human being, um, I'm not. I don't consider myself terribly creative, you know, I'm not an artist, I don't, you know, I, I you know, I just, um, I just don't have, I guess, a lot of, you know, creative contribution, I guess, but um, when I was cooking, that was actually something where, you know, like I said, not following a recipe, truly cooking, you know, which to me, cooking and baking, they couldn't be more different, 100% opposite, and, you know, and I, I share with people, uh, the idea that if you making wine the way we make, we make wine here, it, it would be akin to you going to, again, you know, not under pandemic conditions, but going to your friend's house and you know, opening up the fridge, kind of seeing what's there, and being able to whip up a delicious, complete meal or, or dish from what you see there, from you know, from what's in front of you. Mm -hmm. And so it's very sort of freeform. It's very um, you know sensorial. And, and it's all based on, you know, the components. And, and for us, instead of where cooking is a series of food ingredients with winemaking, for me, it's a series of the vineyards and the actual individual lots that we have. Those those are the those are akin to food ingredients uh, for our, the way we make wine. So I very strongly position myself as a wine cook. That's the way that I think of myself. That's and I every wine that we make here and for our clients as well. It's how I, I approach this whole craft, if you will, is to essentially make the wines unique, but also make them complete. You know, to me, great wine has a very distinctive beginning, middle, and end. There's a progression that should actually, as you enjoy the wine, and aromatically, that's foreplay, and then when you taste the wine, that's actually. It, it should kind of go over, wash over your palate, kind of like a wave, you know, in the most positive way. So there's like this, this, this progression, and it's like it sort of sweeps over your palate, and there's nothing sticking out that's that's not pleasant, you know. So it's just it's, it's everything in, in proportion, everything in balance. You know, balance I think is absolutely essential for great wine, and uh, and and you know to essentially like capture that. And to be able to present wines to our customers that have at least 10 or 15 years more time to be enjoyed mm -hmm. you know, so that they have yeah, all the opportunities in the world to have a positive experience of what we're doing. That's that's kind of the goal. Um, so I'm, anyhow, I drifted from your question. Bring me back. That's okay. Uh, you got into the next question. So this okay. is the previous question is basically kind of what pulled you in and then sort of learning those tools of the trade and, and, and sort of defining yourself as a winemaker. What, what, what was your philosophy? What was your style going to be? Well, so going back to why I got pulled into wine to begin with, I mean, again, I, I was at a juncture where uh, I had several interactions with wine. Uh, you know, it had come on my radar, experiences that were positive, things that were intriguing compelling and um, and so that was that was part of it and then as I mentioned when I came back from Europe I, I, I had virtually no money I needed to work <laughs> so I was like looking through and it's just like winery yeah work wow you know hadn't really thought about that but what a great idea you know it's like why don't I give that a shot that, that, that sounds like it might work out pretty cool and then when I was able to, over that 18-month uh, period, I was at uh, I was at Mirasu for the six months, first six months, as I mentioned, I was uh, kind of a lab tech, and then for that next year, I went through a full cycle out in the cellar, and so was actually making wine, and and that was just like a, a switch flip because, and I, I didn't really know why at the time. It took me about two or three years later where I had kind of this epiphany where it's like, holy shit, you know, 
the same skill set that I use to cook is what I'm doing. To it's like they're like parallel. Oh my God. It's like, this is like a cool cooking, you know, and I don't have to be all tatted up. You know? <laughs> uh, but I could be, but I'm not. Um, so that was, yeah, that was something that really resonated with me, kind of the annual cycle of it, the fact that, you know, the very, I mean, the, the, the best thing about, I mean, there's two things that I think are really, really wonderful and, and uh, I guess really resonate with me about making wine. First of all, it's the, kind of the, the seasonality, or not even the seasonality, it's the every year is different. So it, there's nothing formulaic, I mean, far from it. I mean, I am an adaptive winemaker, and I can tell you that over the last, you know, 20 some odd years, there's been a lot of things that have changed, both from a climate standpoint, environmental standpoint, from a business standpoint. I mean, it's always changing. You know, pepper it in with a global pandemic, which we're in the midst of right at the moment. And, you know, what's fascinating to see is that people's relationship with wine is changing, you know, and, and you know, beverages overall. And, and it's like, it demands engagement. If you're going to be successful in this business, you absolutely have to be engaged in many different aspects. Actually, I would encourage all aspects to really kind of understand what the target is, because it's moving all the time, all the time. And, you know, moving to a location like this, for 12 years, we were in rural Gaston, you know, a mile down a gravel road. You know, people claimed they heard banjo music when they were coming to the <laughs> tasting room and would fear for losing a, a valuable body part or organ, you know. And it's like, then now we're, you know, kind of right in the middle of town here, which is great. Uh, but it's, again, it's it's like a rebirth of sorts. People have to refind you. And granted, they couldn't really find us to begin with because you had to really be intentional to find us. Uh, now we're hoping that, you know, we can be part of the people's wine conversations and choices that they can come out here and, and you know, experience what we've got, you know, the tendril difference, if you will, because it is different. I think about things in a, in a different way than, than a lot of other folks. And, and I like that. I, I'm not a, uh, an anarchist or, you know, a, a, a contrarian necessarily at all. But, uh, but I do, uh, to me, the most rewarding thing that happens when folks come, it's, it can be a, a source of validation. It can also be a, a sobering glass of cold water over your head. But it's like, but when you put out something that is experientially different for people, like the, for example, our white Pinot Noir, it's a, that's a perfect example. So I started making that style of wine back in 2013. And that was the result of a chance meeting with an Italian winemaker at the IPNC that year. And, uh, or sorry, not 2013, excuse me, it was 2004. And so I was, you know, midway through my term at, at the main Serene. And, um, and so I met up with this fellow and I was like chatting with him and he was a, a very opinionated fellow, you know, and, and throughout the, the three days of the IPNC, um, at the end, he like shared with me this idea for his little region in Italy that you know people were making these white Pinot Noirs, and he didn't have it. I didn't taste it. I mean, he was just it was a conversation, and it's like, and so he was telling me about a you know fully mature, fully ripe Pinot Noir grapes that were being made into a white wine that was not carbonated, and it's like. Holy shit! It's like that's it's like why not, why why has anybody done this? It's like that's amazing. I mean, why? Of course, you know this is like ripe champagne or something without the fizz. And so I just thought that was cool. And so I lobbied for it and kind of won that battle and, and uh, ultimately made it that first year and was successful with it. And, uh, and the 2013 reference was when we added it to the tendril lineup. So that was the confusion. But anyhow, but 
we're doing it different here because now and so when I first did it I mean I don't know that there were there was anybody or, or certainly there weren't many folks that were going down that path and now I know along the west coast I could probably name off at least 50 producers that are making a white pinot noir but what we're doing here, I, you know, when I when I reloaded with it in, in the tendril lineup, I was I, I decided that I wanted to do things differently. I wanted to you know change what I had done from my previous experience at Serene with that with that uh, offering. So we stepped away from the new oak, and we're using you know amongst our highest quality grapes actually go into that wine. So it's a single vineyard Pinot Noir. It just happens to be white, and it provides the texture and the presence and the balance that. It, it gets your attention. I mean, and people, we finish with that wine, and, and it's a statement wine for folks. And they walk away just go, wow, I've never tried a wine like that. And to me, that's what it's all about. So if you can get those kind of responses with some frequency, uh, to me, that's complete validation, validation here at our winery that we're on the right path. You mentioned um you think the, the kind of cooking analogy with, with grapes, vineyards being their ingredients. Yes. What do you look for in vineyards? What, what, what excites you about vineyards? And, and then how do you judge them year to year to decide what you're going to do with them? So uh, I'll just touch on, I'll, I'll get to that, uh, to your question in just a, a moment. But I, I wanted to share with you a little bit of the creative process. So for Tendril, as I mentioned, we started in 2008. I had just one offering, and it literally took six years to put together the five Pinot Noirs. And I'd love to tell you that I was like such a brilliant marketer that I started out going, well, I think I'm gonna make a five course meal Pinot Noir. You know, it's like, that sounds great, you know, and, and but I'm not, you know, so I just was like creating, you know, and it's just like, wow, I've, so I've got this wine, I like this, and it's like, well, I need something that's got more stuffing. And then, so then we did the tightrope, which is our reserve Pinot Noir in the second year. And then we held steady, and then in 2011 we added Chardonnay, and then we, you know, we did uh, our first single vineyard offering. We had a vineyard that was just saying, "Hey, you know, bottle me." And then I did C-Note for the first time, which is our 100% whole cluster, which I had never done a 100% whole cluster wine ever in my life. I hadn't I mean, the idea was, you know, previously abhorrent. It's just like, why in the world would you do that, you know? But anyhow, but I did it. I challenged myself. And uh, so my point here is that only when I created the lineup and had those five wines, I kind of stepped back and it's like, hmm. and then a, the little idea like goes, bing. And I was like, holy shit, I know what this is, you know? This is a five course meal of Pinot Noir. It's like, this is the progression. Because what I wanted to do is I wanted to highlight or embrace the diversity of Pinot Noir here in the Willamette Valley, because I think it's incredible. And and it's like, and I've experienced this forever since I've been here. It's like, oh my God, this vineyard is so different than this, or you know, it's like, or this, you know, it, based on elevation and soil type and aspect and clones and planting density. And it's like, there's so many contributing factors to it, but at the end of the day, you know, it's about the real estate. It's location, location, location. And so, so what I've developed, so starting in 2008, you know, it was a complete complete restart. So any of the vineyards I'd worked with previously, I couldn't because, and I didn't want to, to be honest with you, even if I could have. And so I, so I started from scratch, you know, and had some friends who hooked me up with some grapes because it was kind of a, a shortened period of time to make some decisions. But um, anyhow, so, but it came together. And so a very special vintage for me. 2009 Ford, everything, uh, you know, I was putting in place the way that I wanted to see them. In we were growing our program, we had a few clients that were, were on board, and, and so uh, 
but what I want, but what I would tell you is that every one of the vineyards that we that I've selected, and so I've chosen them for a specific reason for what they're going to bring or contribute into the program. So if you think about the food analogy is a good one. Another great one is thinking about the vineyards, the Pinot Noir vineyards, as paint on a painter's palette. So if you think about it in those terms, every one of those vineyards needs to be its own unique color, and then that provides the background or the tools, if you will, for us to create these these different, you know, these these different paintings, you know, these these different expressions. And you know, and when art works, you know, they complement each other. And when food works, when the when the chef is able to tell you a story about food over a five course experience, it's a great thing. And then if you can get wines to match up or sync up with that too, everything gets elevated, you know. And to me, those are incredible things when they happen. <clears throat> and so the the tendril Pinot Noir, so the tendril Pinot Noirs, they start from, you know, a little lighter bodied and more red fruited. And then, you know, on the on the far end of the spectrum, you've got 100% whole clusters. So you've got this uh, this impact, the stem impact, and the floral aspects and the textural uh, contribution from that technique. And and to me, whole cluster is a whole other conversation that that I could go on for for days because. It's, it's all about the execution. You know, it's like the percentage is actually less, I mean, means very little relative to what you're doing from a cap management standpoint, how you're making the wine, you know? And for us, we're, we're as gentle as we possibly can be. You know, if, if we could get through harvest with not a single berry falling off of a whole cluster in our fermentation, we would consider it a huge success. And so we actually try and avoid them. And for the 100% whole cluster, oftentimes we're doing very little in the form of cap management and just kind of letting it do its thing. And what happens is that, you know, the fermentation takes three or four times as long. And it's just a completely different animal. And it tastes different. It, it texturally is different. Everything about it is different. And I think that's cool. So you mentioned each vineyard bringing a different color. So when you're seeking out a vineyard, what are you looking for? Uh, is it something from previous experience? Or are you looking for certain location, certain height? That's not, not, a, good not a great smell. No. Uh, certain certain location, certain height, uh, certain uh, certain <coughs> clone. What what is it you're looking for as you seek a new vineyard? Yes. So I'll use the term diversity again because I think it's a very very timely uh, term to to be focused on. I, I you know over my experience, I'll, I'll touch on Domaine Serene for just a moment. Uh, so. When I started there, there were probably four or five, maybe a half a dozen vineyard sites that were being worked with, and they were all there uh, through a relationship to Ken Wright because he was the winemaker, right? So that makes perfect sense. And then over the next few years, those kind of got weaned off as I would have done being in Ken's position as well. It's like, why would I sell grapes when I can make the wine? And you know, so ultimately those vineyards kind of went away. And so they were, there were other vineyards that either came online or, or were more focused on I mean, there was a ton of young fruit that uh, during most of my time at Serene that was adding to and contributing to the program. And, but importantly and interestingly, uh, a range of uh, appellations, elevations, soil types. So, you know, by the time I left, uh, we had vineyards down as low as 200 feet, and we had vineyards that were over 800 feet. And we had volcanic soils, and we had sedimentary, you know, marine sedimentary soils, and then we had Missoula flood soils, and so we had like all this diversity within the program. So I was actually really able to kind of grow up and study that, and, and figure out, you know, by tasting and, and by creating this program, 
from a from a wine uh, offering standpoint, um, it was it was a, a wonderful learning curve. And, and I guess the number one message that came across to me is that you want to have obviously high quality vineyard sites that are grown well and planted to the right things, but importantly, uh, that are in the right spot. And, and also that you're, you're kind of bracketing things such that you're getting a range of textures and flavors, higher elevation sites routinely have, uh, you know, redder fruits and, and brighter acidity. And lower elevation sites routinely have darker fruits and more structure. And it's like, and to see how those fit, when you start thinking about them in terms of a cooking, the cooking analogy, it's like, well, yeah, I need, you know, I need some lemon juice here, and, and uh, here I need, uh, you know, maybe some bitter coffee that, you know, I'm going to put into the sauce or, you know, whatever. And it's like you start thinking about them in terms of, of spices or contribution. And it's like, how can I actually, and, you know, how can I, how I, how can I combine these to actually have an elevated result? You know, where where they qualitatively, they're individually here, and then when you add additively, they go here. You know, it's like, which is a wonderful thing about. Blending wines, you know, blending wines doesn't necessarily at all indicate that you're taking it from disparate or different sites. It can be with, a, you know, just from an individual barrel from that same uh, little um, allocation of wine. So, um, so to me, that's important. So every year we reevaluate, reevaluate every site that we have. So we're tasting and we're doing a critical evaluation. And so I would tell you that over the period of time I've been doing this, you know. Some vineyards trend this way over time. It's more like this. And then other vineyards, you know, trend the other direction. Very few stay the same. And so you're wanting the ones that are trending upwards. And this is from a, you know, very ethereal, qualitative perspective, I guess. But in our program, I like to make full flavored Pinot Noirs. And to me, that means wines that have texture, that have flavor, that also have vibrancy and life. You know, acidity is absolutely critical and essential to cool climate grape varietals like Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And of course, you don't want to have too much, but you certainly don't want to have too little because when the acidity is not sufficient, the wines are lifeless and dull, and just like people. Um, so, I feel like that's super critical and important. And so if you have some higher elevation sites that are contributing more of that natural acidity, and then you have other sites that are producing more of the base tones with the darker fruit components, you can make a really interesting sort of blended wine that's that's very layered and textured like I, like I shared earlier that I think is of critical importance to great wine. And, and they need to all be individuals. You know, every one of them needs to be there for a specific reason. So not only, uh, I would say, I would also share that, uh, as I mentioned, the single vineyard is very, it's a prized position in our lineup, but also by association, every one of those offerings, whether it's Extrovert, whether it's Cena, whether it's The Pretender, any of those wines, they all have to audition, re-audition for their slot in the lineup every year too. So there's no guarantees that we're going to do a tightrope in 2019. Mm -hmm. um, we're setting out to make it. I'm seeking out vineyards that actually have that flavor profile. And the beautiful thing too about having our own unique identifier or name for these wines is that I've greedily kept all of the creative license, if you will, for me. So I can go out solely with the goal of tasting these lots and saying, yeah, this tastes like tightrope, you know, or it's like, yeah, this is a pretty good candidate for a single vineyard wine, or these are extrovert, like, you know, they're really having that, those, those kind of characteristics. And that way things can move around a little bit. And, and I, I would tell you that almost every year they do, as far as either the percentages or the vineyards that contribute. 
and uh, and so that's confusing. My goal is to try and one of my goals is to try and simplify it because wine is one of the most complicated topics that there are that's out there. And the last thing I want to do is lose a potential customer because they're confused. You know, it's like so. Here's a single name. Here's what it's going to taste like. Independent of vintage. And I'm going to sit on the nest like Horton, and and uh, we're going to hatch this sucker for three years before it even sees the light of day. I'm doing that for you, brother. You know, I got your back. So then, when I when it's when that becomes yours, you know, you're the owner. You're providing the forever home for that bottle of wine. Then at that point in time, you can decide when's the right time to pull the cork on that. Whether it's tonight, 10 years from tonight, 15 years from tonight, I can virtually assure you, as long as it's under proper storage conditions, that you're gonna have a positive experience with that wine. Mm-hmm. And hopefully you'll have a great flavor memory that's formed when you're enjoying your tendril or child's play wine. Ask about whole cluster specifically because you brought it up as something that you're very interested in and kind of added later to the to the catalog. It's become a very big part of our program too. I'm curious about learning the learning when to use it and learning how to use it and, and, and to kind of take us through your kind of your kind of discovery of whole cluster. Yeah, well, I, I think your, your question, I think that's what everyone wants to know. <laughs> it's kind of like the analogy of, you know, the gopher, there's like 20 holes in one gopher, and where's it going to pop up, you know? And so your guess is as good as mine. Um, I guess I would answer that. For me, I, I, I look at keys, you know, whether it's grape growing, like this time of year is perfect time. So we're probably two weeks from the start of the color change, you know. So, um, and I know that we're getting close. Obviously, I can go root through all the vineyards and look for it, but I can also look at, like, the blackberries. And I know, whoa, incoming! <laughs> uh, that when the blackberries go from being, you know, black and, like, sour and, like, acid that'll pinch your head off, to being more lush and, and uh, you know lowering the acidity, that's about the time I'm going to see some red grapes. You know, so it's like that's a key. You know, or I look in a vineyard and when you see the tendrils are still you know lengthy and growing and, and uh, green, as opposed to being dried up and brown. You know, that means that vineyard's still in its vegetative phase and it's still growing. And what I want to see is as that color change comes, I want to see that vineyard kind of start to shut down and shift from growing leaves to growing, you know, to putting its energy into making, you know, grape flavors and, and, uh, and providing the, the, uh, the development that we're looking for to get that fruit, you know, fully ripe and sufficiently ripe. And so um, vigor is a very important part of, uh, I'd say they're inversely proportionate largely with Pinot Noir and quality. So more vigorous vineyards, in general, provide lower quality Pinot Noir, and less vigorous vineyards produce higher quality Pinot Noir. But I would put an asterisk by that because there can be too little vigor. I mean, there can be too little vigor. So you can have too much stress. Stress is, uh, as it pertains to vineyards, it's the analogy is very applicable to vineyard uh, to grapevine, like a person. So if you think about it in that way, so there's a perfect amount of stress for a human being too much and uh, no no bueno and not enough and you know they're lazy and non-productive so you know so you want to have that right amount of stress and so for a, a grapevine and a vineyard specifically you want to be seeing certain keys that are indicating that it's on the right path as it comes to whole cluster fermentation 
if indeed the, the vineyard is more vegetative, like for example, many sites in the Dundee Hills have very deep Jory soils. And so the Jory soils are volcanic in origin. And what happens when you've got this big rock, which is the, which is the lava remnants, if you will, that's breaking down, is that you get these pits and you get these areas where the vines can follow down to where there's a, a resource of water and they can be quite vigorous. So I've had less success with whole cluster fermentation collectively or regionally in the Dundee Hills than I have, say, with the Yamhill Carlton Aviator. So I like, for me, for the style of wines that we're making, I like to see a little less vigor and I like to see a little bit more stress uh, or, you know, or, or I should say challenge vineyards where uh, it's actually forcing uh, the vineyard to to make less vegetative flavors because those will ultimately or can ultimately come out in the wines themselves if indeed the, the vineyards aren't adequately stressed I guess so I think that's important so I'm leaning more towards you know marine sedimentary soils for our whole cluster expressions but we continue to look at other sites you know so because like I mentioned earlier it's a moving landscape always you know so if you're not investigating lots of different things you're probably going to be missing out stuff and you know and also very importantly seeing what some of my counterparts are doing and tasting wines and other folks sellers and you know that's why i jumped in the whole cluster saddle because i i just the whole concept eluded me it didn't make any sense because you know just on the surface you know why would i as a winemaker put you know green stuff into my fermentation vessel when i'm not looking for green flavors that just didn't it just eluded me. It's like I don't, I don't get that. And then I would chew on stems, and they were horrible, and it would like make my mouth. So, I mean, I'd start gagging and like spitting. So I didn't like what I tasted. But again, if you're if you're choosing the right sites and your 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 management of the fermentation is appropriate, then you can wind up with some really wonderful, if not compelling, results. And what I've seen with whole cluster as far as the contribution is that I, there's no way to replicate what it can do when it's well executed. And when it's poorly executed, uh, I would say the same thing, but it, with the opposite effect, where the wines are not delicious. And, you know, whole cluster as a concept, it's a very blunt instrument. It's, uh, I think an appropriate analogy would be like, you know, going to a restaurant and your waiter or, waiter, or your host, your uh, server brings out this giant black pepper mill. It's like, sir, would you like black pepper with your pasta? And so they're like crunching away on that. And it's like, so if someone's like doing that for a half an hour, that's probably too much black pepper, you know, and you know when it's too much and the whole cluster is like that, you know, and you know when, it, when it's the right amount, the dish gets elevated. And when it's too much, it, it, it essentially gets obliterated by it. And so, and you know, New Oak is, is kind of like that a little bit too, but not quite as overt, you know. It just makes it taste more like bourbon. <laughs> so, and, and, and I use that analogy because honestly, the stems can pro provide a peppery flavor, particularly when you're braiding them and bringing out some of the harsher elements from that, which we try and avoid like the plague in our cellar. So I want to ask about about Pinot. You you obviously uh, Pinot was part of being in Oregon, but it doesn't seem like you came here necessarily because you were excited about Pinot. So tell me about kind of learning it, learning it, learning to love it, and and why you know continuing to make it now. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point you touch on. So um, yeah, I've, you know, so I got a lot of friends. You know, I'd say 
you know, probably 99.9% .9 of the people that I interact with in this business, I'm in some level of, you know, good graces, what shall we say, or, or talking basis, or, you know. So, um, so you, you know, you try a lot of wines from other people and, you know, their experiences. Um, I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? I just so, uh, sort of talking about Pinot, like yeah. it wasn't necessarily why you came here, but then obviously you had to, you kind of, you had to sort of learn to make it, learn to love it here. So kind of curious about sort of discovering Pinot, learning to work with it and, and continuing to work with it. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, so I got into this business, well, largely because I was looking for work to, to begin with. And then ultimately, when I realized the parallels with cooking, uh, it was just, it, it really just kind of like resonated with me. It's like, you know, I can be creative where I don't consider myself to be naturally a creative person. And, you know, it was just, it, it just really was exciting to me. And, um, I like making wine. That's the bottom line. So I like making Cabernet. I like making Merlot. I like making Chardonnay. And I've known a bunch of people, like when I, particularly when I was going to school, and then folks that I met through the industry, you know, who, like, they're all about Pinot Noir. They like bow down to the altar. When you think about it, like pre Sideways, which now seems like a dog's age ago or whatever, but it's like it was a significant event for the industry because Pinot Noir prior to that point in time was largely the grape variety for freaks and weirdos, you know, it's like, or people that were like studious, you know, they were like, they wanted the minutia, you know, Pinot Noir attracted folks that were all about the fine little details, you know, and it's like, think about Burgundy, it's like you need a, a damn thesaurus to, to navigate through it, it's like, it's just so complex, you know, absolutely, com and it gets more complex every year with the whole inheritance loss in, in Burgundy where everything gets sliced and diced. So, um, but people are drawn to Pinot Noir, so some people like set out and started their own brands or worked for wineries because they really wanted to work with Pinot Noir, and for me, um, I just wanted to make really great wine, you know, and, and the best wine I possibly could. And so, environmentally, to me, it's less, it was less important about what I was working with. It was more about the execution of it and the wines that resulted. And so coming back to the Willamette Valley, as I mentioned, one of the first things that I kind of lobbied for was to be able to, to make something other than Pinot Noir <laughs> because I wanted to um, be able to put my complete signature on something from the, from the start. And uh, But over time, and it probably only took a vintage or two, where you start really experiencing how appropriate, I mean, when you think about it, and this is actually a really incredibly salient point, I think, is that there's only two regions in the United States that have this varietal identifier as the centerpiece or how you identify with the, with the region. And so it's Cabernet with Napa, obviously, and it's Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley. And I would actually uh, propose that virtually any other region would probably give their eye teeth for, for that. And it's a way to initially relate to a region. And so, and Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, uh, you know, I'll just touch on those two right now. Uh, obviously, there's other great varieties that work here, but, uh, but that, they're so appropriate here. And it's like, and, and you can make such interesting and profound expressions here. So it's like, it's the right fit. You know, when you look back 50 some odd years ago, when Pinot Noir first came to this region by Dave Lutt and others, um, we got lucky with the Pinot Noir because the clones actually were good and worked in this region. The Chardonnay, not so much, you know. And so it took us another 20, 25 years to kind of get to the point where we're, we're shooting, the, shooting with the right, uh, with the right, right ammunition. And and so, um, yeah, I wasn't necessarily drawn to that, but working with Pinot Noir and then 
early on, like 98 and 99, actually, when I was at Serene, 98 was a weird year. It was like a half crop year and um, uneven ripening and stuff like that. In 1999, it was incredible. I mean, that was like such a profound vintage and that probably had a pretty deep uh, impact on me where the wines just had this this depth of, of flavor and intensity. It was a very long, cool growing season. And, you know, rain didn't show up probably until November or something. You know, it was crazy. But uh, but some of those wines uh, still to this day are, are incredible. But but when you see it in, you know, when you see it and it's it's incredible and it's in the, you know, it's it's presenting all of these complexities. I mean, to me, that's that's really what it's all about. You know, early on when I was at Mirasu, uh, so my first wine experience, I was, you know, cellar rat. And, uh, but they offered to their employees, they actually did these wine education courses. So I signed up for that. And, um, and one of the first, uh, and, and, and we could do it for free. So it was like, so it's like, oh yeah, great. So I signed up and one of the, one of the sessions was about Pinot Noir. And so there were like a half dozen Pinot Noirs. And, and this is emblematic, I think, of, of what I find attractive about Pinot Noir. And the six wines were, they weren't that great, you know, they were just okay. But I remember the way I taste wine is I actually smell through everything first, one, one by one, scribble some little notes, and then I go back and taste. And I still remember this. So I was like, you know, doing that, going back and taste, so I'd smell through them all, wrote down my notes, and then I was starting to taste, and then I was like, and then you can't not smell and taste. And it's like, whoa. And then I was like scratching this out and then writing that around. And I did that for every one of the six wines. And it's like, it's like, holy shit, these are like changing, you know? It's like, and so that that chameleon-like tendency of Pinot Noir and that that, uh, that ability or tendency to change, I, I think was, was really kind of stuck out to me during that tasting. And then since, you know, seen it for every vintage since up here. And so to me, it's just, it's, it's incredible. And I mean, if I was to be shackled with as a winemaker, you know, with the limitations of working with only one grape variety, I mean, Pinot Noir would be an easy choice now because it's so versatile. And, and that's, again, touching on the diversity part of it again, I think is like so important is that um, it's just, it's, it's, there's so many different expressions there. You know, so when you think about it, it's like they're all different. I mean, every one of them. So winemaker, site, winemaking approach, vintage, you know, you've got all these things that are, that are influencing it. Some would argue that, you know, wines are merging together collectively as an industry. I would say qualitatively things are, you know, moving upwards, which is good, but I still feel like there's an incredibly broad range of offerings out there with regards to Pinot Noir, even as our climatic conditions are changing. And I think that's cool. And I think it should be embraced and I think it should be celebrated. Are, is, there a, is there a downside to working with Pinot Noir? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the first, the, uh, the first, which is probably not obvious, but it's real, is that, you know, and this is like fascinating to me. So we've got, what is it now, 800 wineries, let's say roughly in the region. And in the Willamette Valley, there's probably whatever, six, 650 or something like that. Um, so there's a hell of a lot of competition. And so there's a lot of Pinot Noir. One of the most difficult places to sell Pinot Noir for me is in the Portland metro area, which is the number one market. So, but, but equally interestingly, and not surprisingly, for folks that are coming here from out of the area, all they want to taste is Pinot Noir. And then Chardonnay is a surprise. White Pinot Noir, like, you know, blows their mind and rolls their eyes back in their head and they start drooling. Kind of. But I mean, it's like, 
but things that are surprising, uh, but they're here for the peanut. That's why they're here. So there's like this double-edged sort of challenge or sword there. Um, certainly from a grape growing perspective, you know, a year like last year, you know, there were some wrinkles. It was a, it was a weird kind of growing season. We had rain probably every, it was some significant form of rain probably every couple, three weeks or something, which typically during the summertime, like now, uh, in 2020, um, you know, we haven't seen any appreciable rain for probably a month now. And, and so we probably won't for a while, which is normal. Um, but when you get into these more challenging growing conditions, you know, Pinot Noir has thinner skins, it wants to split. Uh, when you have a year like this, where we've had a lot of shot berries, which are the tiny little berries without a, a, without a fully developed seed, uh, they're more fragile. And so as we get closer to harvest, we'll see some rain, we always do. And so those are a little more fragile, they're probably split. And so depending on what the weather conditions are, it can greatly influence your level of success or failure. So Pinot Noir is a little bit more susceptible to some of those things. So in that regard, that's certainly a challenge. But again, I think the, the benefits, I mean, by multiples outweigh any of the challenges. And you just have to, you have to be engaged all the way through. So wipe the slate clean uh, for the new growing season and, and you know, pay attention. I mean, and to me, that's really all it's about. And, and I guess importantly, again, I'll reiterate, location, 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 absolutely critical to great quality. Yeah, I mean, whatever the varietal is, but here we're talking about Pinot Noir, so. I have a question that's kind of a two two parts because it's you, you're on both ends of it. So you're as as a as a winemaker, you're obviously working with with vineyard sites who are growing grapes according to the way they want to grow grapes. And then as a as a kind of a custom crush winemaker, you're making wine for people who might have their own ideas for what their wine is going to be. So tell me about those kind of relationships, about how the give and take of, of, of building those kind of long term relationships, and when when you're making wine for people, what what they're asking of you and what you're bringing to the table, and and kind of the same for for vineyards you work with. Yeah, I mean, from the vineyard standpoint, I mean, when we first started, um, I was doing almost all of the sourcing for our group collectively, our group of clients. And, and so uh, they were almost completely from source vineyards. So rare was the occasion where I had a client that had their own vineyard. And, and that's changed rather dramatically now over the last 12 years. So the majority of those with whom we work have their own grapes, at least in part, if not, you know, a, a huge part. And so, uh, so it's cracking the code on that vineyard. Um, you know, we have a small client, Open Claim, for example, who, um, you know, we were only making just a tiny amount of wine for them for many years as they were just kind of, they use the, the brand a little bit like a bookmark. They still have, you know, their current careers. And so ultimately they'll start transitioning to, to focusing more on, on, their, on their wine project. But as far as, you know, more, uh, more of their um, time being spent on that. But, but they, but that's a great example because we bring in probably three or four times the amount of grapes that we actually have needed, and so it allows us to be able to come up with a really complete wine uh, for them that lands in the bottle. And I think that's really important. So you need to have a critical mass, if you will, of grapes that you're working with if indeed you want to have the ability to create the, the most interesting and compelling wine. Because as we, as we certainly have talked about, um, the vintage piece is, is such a huge factor, absolutely huge. Um, 
And then the case of Saffron Fields, for example, you know, we are working with collectively between what we're purchasing from them for, for Tendril and what we're working with for Saffron and a couple other projects, um, you know, probably 80% of that vineyard's coming here. So we've got a lot of, uh, a lot of flexibility, a lot of uh, different components that we can work with there. So that allows us to create, you know, I think there's like seven or eight wines that we're making now for Saffron, um, maybe 10. Which is which is cool, and so uh, to me, I always want to you know try and tell a story about the site. You know, so they're they're kind of in lockstep with each other, I guess. And so, uh, as far as from a stylistic standpoint, um, Tendril provides a wonderful opportunity for me to have audition material, <laughs> so I can show you a pretty broad range of Pinot Noir options with our five offerings and our Chardonnay, or actually two Chardonnays now, and then with the Child's Play brand. So. There's, there's a lot to look at there, so it's a great place to start. I would say almost to the client, uh, the folks that I'm working with uh, are doing so because they like the wines that I make. And I've been making wine here for a while, so that's helpful. So usually folks are coming and they're like, you know, I like the wines you make, and you make wines like that for me. And, and, so, and so it's usually pretty simple. But, you know, as the lines expand, you know, that's, that's where more of the you know, how are we gonna extend the range a little bit in the, in the lineup or what makes sense? And, and uh, so, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, a very um, interactive uh, conversation, if you will. And, and so to me, that's important. And, but I guess ultimately I would, I guess for me, I, I kinda am firm in that I, I just wanna make sure that we have a high chance for being able to replicate the lineup or omit something if indeed uh, you know Mother Nature isn't agreeing with you know what our plans are, <laughs> and so we've got the you know we can we can actually you know control qualitatively what we're doing. I think that's really important because it's, it's important obviously for their brands, but it's also important for for me and, and for what we're doing here. So, and I the, the beautiful thing about our setup here is that. You know, while we're making eight to ten thousand cases of wine for for several different uh, for several different brands, it, it's all treated like it's ours. You know what I mean? It's like the same degree of attention to detail, and we can control all of it. You know, when you get into a situation like, for example, over at the winemaker studio, it, you know, everybody's got their. It's like you know, airplanes landing at O'Hare or something. You know, it's like so people are lined up, and and so. And, and they do a great job over there, but it's just a different—it's it, just a different deal because uh, everybody's got their own setup, you know. And so here we can have—we have a high probability or chance of, of, you know, having our DNA integral to the wines, mm -hmm. and, and I really like that. And it makes—it simplifies things too, to be honest. You mentioned Saffron Fields. I want to kind of I want to come back to that because you, you mentioned that you are making their wines in addition to using their grapes for your wines. Yes. Talk about differentiating the two. Yeah. Well, so uh, I'll share with you uh, an experience I had. So I was over there um, doing a little blending trial for them. They asked me to do. It was probably like three years ago, two or three years ago. And Angela and Sanjeev, uh, Angela Summers and Sanjeev Hoodie are the owners. And they were there uh, during the tasting, and uh, and I think the question somehow came up, 
and Angela just sort of volunteered. It's like so, and she's like, yeah, you know, that's that's one of the things we like about Tony is that, you know, it's like. Oftentimes, our single vineyard will be from Saffron Fields, and she's like, and, and even when that, and, and they actually have uh, offered my wine, the Saffron Fields wine there, and actually they've offered a few others over over time. Um, and uh, and her comment was, it's like, yeah, and, and you know, all of our wines are, are really different, and then and the, the tendril of Saffron Fields is always different than ours, you know, and it's like, and that just made me smile because that's that's exactly what we do. I mean. It's not, we're not a winery that has a McTank and bottles McWines for McBrands and, and uh, you know, that's just not our thing. I mean, we're keeping every little bit and piece and component separate. You know, when I mentioned our approach to the single vineyard offering for, for Tendril, it's very emblematic of our entire program because in that situation, every one of the sites um, that we're working with they're kept in their as their own little sublot, and and so we probably in a given year we have somewhere between 60 and 100 individual little component uh, components that we're keeping separate. You know the barrel size may be as small as a single barrel, upwards to maybe eight or ten barrels. Importantly, every one of those components could ultimately become our single vineyard wine. So we're treating it like it's a, like it's going to be our single vineyard wine, even though most of them aren't going to be. And I guess what I'm getting at is that the appropriate barrel uh, assignment and, and you know as far as new oak and coopers and all that all that thought, thought process is, is kind of replicated for all those wines and so ultimately when it comes time to put the blends together you know you know we're tasting through 100 150 wines at least uh, between the new and the older oak components for each one of those sublots and, and it's a lot to do however the wines are really transparent at that point. I mean, they've been in barrel for 14 months before we do any blend determinations whatsoever for our over-vintaging program, which is virtually all of our clients. And when that's the case, it makes the decision-making actually more straightforward, you know, because, and then I have to look at it all collectively to make sure that everything's gotten its place. Everything, you know, the extrovert tastes like the extrovert, the tightrope's like the tightrope, and, you know, all of the saffron offerings are where they need to be, you know, so, and you have to, that's the only way I know how to do it. So it's an onerous maybe three or four day period of time where we're doing most of the heavy lifting there but but it, I found we have a much higher degree of success because we've we put in all of that front-end work to make sure that we kept all of our options open and and so that's a really valuable part of our approach to making one so tell me about uh, the the biggest changes you've seen to Oregon wine since you've been a part of it. Obviously, you've seen you've seen a lot of growth since you've been here. What are the other changes you've seen? What, how is Oregon wine different now than when you when you got here? Um, well, <laughs> there's there's been a lot of changes. Um, you know, I, I guess probably the most salient ones are um, there, there's a bit of a race to the bottom, I guess, from a from a pricing standpoint, you know? So um, when I first came to Oregon, you know, for example, well, I'll just speak in terms of, of sort of like models, but so traditionally for the wine business, it's, it's like this pyramid, right? So essentially, so if the pyramid is all wine for a region, you know, and this is price here, and then this is the volume down here. So it, it's typically a pyramid. So there's more, less expensive wine that's out there uh, relative to the more expensive wine. And when I first came to Oregon, it was probably like a Coors Lycan, or maybe even an upside down pyramid a little bit. So, and, and so 
like what happens with people during middle age, we've gotten, kind of gotten spread, right? <laughs> so we got that bottom like spreading out there a little bit. And, and so that's, that's a big thing, like bigger picture thing that's taking place. And it's understandable, you know, that's, I mean, as the region matures, there's, there's got to be some of that, you know, we've got some more, you know, higher volume producers that are now here in Oregon, but relative to other regions, still pretty small. Washington's always a fascinating example because roughly 70% of the industry is under one company, <laughs> which is like, oh my God, and they make a lot of wine. So um, there's no one quite like that here now, but you know, we'll see. So that's, so I think that's important. And this is also part of how people are, you know, relating to wine. This kind of ties in with that conversation that, you know, people want, they want quality and price, you know, so, and they should, you know, I, I think that that's a natural progression. So that's part of the reason for us why we decided to go with Child's Play. What I didn't want to do, and, and this was an intentional decision, which, you know, I'll let you know in a few years whether it was a smart one, but um, it's, it's difficult in the beginning, but I could have taken that Child's Play Pinot and stuck it under Tendril. But to me, it would have eroded the concept that I put together for Tendril, which is built around this, this kind of five-course meal experience. And so, um, and the price points for Tendril are a little higher. So for Child's Play, our SRPs are, are around $30 for all the offerings. And then for Tendril, they started at closer to 50 and go up to now 150 And so very different, uh, very different pricing models. And, uh, but that's our way of trying to get into the marketplace to get some by-the-glass placements and things instead of, uh, um, you know, really having to um, completely destroy any of our pricing to, to try and do that with Tendril. It's just the wines are too expensive, and I get that. So, so we're trying to adapt there a little bit and pivot, if you will. And uh, and I think a lot of people are doing that. It's a lot easier to put it into your primary brand and to, or your yeah your main brand, if you will. Um, but longer term, I don't know that it's the best for the overall health of your brand because ultimately if you give if you have winery x and you've got you know one a wine that's in the portfolio for a roughly half price shall we say um you know that ultimately becomes or potentially becomes the identity of your brand so things kind of fall apart or shift and and so i didn't want to do that um so that's part of it you know there's uh, i guess i would just touch on the natural wine movement um I wish there was more substance there. Uh, there's a lot of smoke. There's a lot of puffery. There's a lot of, uh, you know, posing, if you will. Uh, if your wine is, you know, kind of effed up and fizzy, uh, you know, it's cool. In the, in the you know, Portland, the Portland wine market, large, and it has to be inexpensive. So it's got to be inexpensive. It's got to be cloudy and somewhat fizzy. And, you know, you would hope that it would taste good, you know, but I think a lot of people kind of fail to realize that, you know, there's a continuum, you know, grapes are here, you know, wine is kind of a midpoint, shall we say, but the most natural wine you can make, it's called vinegar, okay? So, and as wine kind of goes down, and you, I, I say down, because, you know, you typically get less money, although there's some vinegars you get a lot more for, but anyhow, but wine's kind of this midpoint, you know, some of those wines are closer to the vinegar side, you know, which not really what I'm looking for for wine. I, I think deliciousness, 
and wine, are, it's it's so important. You know, it's like the wine has to taste good. You know, I think if you're going to have any staying power with regards to your brand concept and what you're doing, you know, people need to taste it. It needs to be very black and white, plus minus. You know, it's like, oh yeah, that's good, or oh, that's not so good. It's like, okay, and again, simplicity. I think it's so important <laughs> because we we live in an ever increasingly complex world. You know, and and. And then you complicate it even more with wine, with vintages, with producer, with region, with you know multiple offerings from a given vineyard, a you know, single vineyard, blah blah blah. You know, it's like so everything's working against you in that regard as far as making it more complex. So simplifying, I think, is a really good thing. And so I'm not dismissive or you know, hating on anything with regards to the whole natural wine thing. I consider all wine to be natural. I don't know what unnatural wine is, to be honest with you. I mean, does it come from Mars? Does it does it come from China? You know, I don't know, but. They're making, they have vineyards in China too, but um, I don't know. I mean, hard to say, but it's, so I, I don't like, and just like I don't like labeling in general, you know, as far as how we're painting ourselves, if, if you're growing biodynamically or if you're organic or if you're sustainable, I mean, to me, the goal should be minimal inputs. You know, it's like, how can we do less? We're, less is more with wine. You know, it's like the less, and, and I, I can say that without any hesitation whatsoever. The best ones that I've made are the ones that I've had to do the least amount to. And so you need to be you know, working with the right site, with the right grape varieties, with the right clones planted and, and you know, grown properly and well executed in the wine. Don't, don't drop the ball. Don't fumble the football, if you will. And, and great things can, can happen. And so you know, the more lotions and potions and, and, and uh, you know, secret spells that you have to put over things, but the less the success. And I guess that's something that I think hasn't changed, is that I think that that's really what most people are looking for, you know. I mean, whatever is kind of the trendy thing to put out there is fine, but like I said, with the whole natural winemaking thing, I guess the, the main point of some irritation for me is that there just aren't a whole lot of rules, you know, and, and I think that that's dangerous, you know, because then people are painting with a broad brush and, you know, I think that there should be a little more structure there. What, what about, uh, what about as you look ahead for Oregon, what is, what is going to happen to the industry in the, in the next, five, say, five, ten years? Well, I think it's, I mean, we're just going to continue evolving, maturing, I guess, if you will, I, you know, I feel like, um, again, the landscape is, is changing. So I think that's going to continue. I think the rate of change is probably going to increase would be my guess. And uh, just using this global pandemic as an example. Nice. Feel the power of the Honda. <laughs> uh, um, I, yeah, I feel like um, this is actually, the, I mean, it's not all bad, you know, there's a lot bad about a global pandemic, but the, as it pertains to the wine business, some of the, I'd say the silver linings, I guess, if you will, is that as an industry, I would say, my opinion is that the wine industry oftentimes lags behind techno technologically, sometimes woefully, <laughs> sometimes embarrassingly, um, whereas now, being forced to embrace, you know, video conferencing and Zoom and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's a great opportunity to have more connectivity with your customers uh, and customers at every level. So, you know, for example, you know, the 
old school approach to selling wine is to use a distributor and to, you know, once or twice a year go to the marketplace and then you sit in the car next to some sales rep who's, you know, suffering from ADD and, and uh, you know, has way too much stuff going on and is trying to place other orders. And, and so you're trying to connect with a buyer and you may or may not, and you may sell a couple boxes of wine. And then ultimately, if you have a placement, the, the problem with that approach is that you're only momentarily in the marketplace and then you're gone. And so you, you don't have a chance to connect more than the five or 10 or 15 minutes that you're in front of the buyer if you're lucky. And then well, after that, you're gone. And so with video conferencing, for example, I, I think it's imperative, especially for a brand like ours, or both of our brands that are you know, on the less known side of things. You know, they're not everyday names yet. Um, but um, doing a, a, some kind of staff training is imperative. So if you get into a restaurant, well, scratch that we're in a global pandemic there is no on-premise but even for a retailer if they bring in a new wine you want to be able to interact with their salespeople to be able to do something electronically from afar it's not only cost effective for a winery but it's also more opportunities to do that and and people are everyone knows how to do it now and and it's like that's huge absolutely huge moving forward you know um and just being able to connect with people the internet obviously is how people have been buying things for now for probably the last 15 years or so but there's been an exponential increase in that for everybody i mean you can't you know, I mean, sitting here today, we'll probably see 15 you know, Amazon Prime trucks go past. You know, it's like, so, so that's, you know, people have realized that I don't have to come to a tasting room and sit down and listen to you blather on and, and uh, you know, in order to, some people want to, and I want those people to come, but not everybody has the time to commit to that. So at two o'clock in the morning, when you decide, hey, it's important, I need some wine, you know, so you can go online and thank you, Al Gore, for inventing the internet. <laughs> Good job. Um, so, um, so that, I think, again, that's, that's probably something that we need to embrace, and, and it can be a positive thing. The, you know, the whole social media piece is, is ever increasing as far as its relevance. And again, how you know current younger generations are, are relating to things is, is very important. That we're and, and you know the the unit of purchase is you know is shrinking. So you know there are less you know twelve bottle cases of wine being sold and more single bottles. You know or maybe glasses or whatever. I mean it's like so that you have to pay attention to all that stuff. So I think that's that's going to continue. There'll be more people that get into the business, which is great. Uh, the hot tub is flexible. It's ever increasing. More people can come in, but some people will exit, you know, and so that's actually kind of a newer chapter for us as an industry here. So kind of the first time I think we're really with any, um, with any n real numbers starting to experience that. So it's all part of growing up, you know, and There'll be new stuff, you know, new grape varieties. I think the climate will, well, I don't think there's any question that things will continue to change from a growing, uh, grape growing perspective. Uh, new grape varieties, stuff like that, I think it's good. But like I said, I'll circle back around to the, and, and I think it's so important for us to, to realize, embrace, you know, the conversation here starts with Pinot Noir. And that's a really good thing, you know. And I'm not saying we're a one trick pony by any means. But, you got to be able to relate to people and you know going out in the marketplace for the last couple of decades and you know i mean everybody who knows of the Willamette Valley knows Pinot Noir those two are in lockstep and that's that's a really good place to start the conversation
what about as you look ahead for yourself and, and for Tendril? What do you what do you sort of see and hoping for over the next? We're five for sale. Years? <laughs> uh, just kidding. Um, <laughs> you can edit that. <laughs> <laughs> or not, I don't care. Um, yeah, you know, I I think for us, it's a matter of, it, so, you know, I think, you know, life is a series of successes and failures. Uh, I, I wouldn't say there are any failures, but if I could go back in time, like 12 years ago, and, and kind of choose a different approach, I probably would. I started out with Tendril as a brand selling primarily in three-tier and distribution, and uh, that is a... Uh, in an arena, a category, uh, a, a sales avenue, if you will, that's largely broken, and, and uh, I don't think it's going to get fixed uh, anytime too soon. So it's not the best way to do it. Importantly, when you start out with a brand, and, and Tendril is the first brand that I've created, you know, Child's Play is the second. And, but when you do that, importantly, what I've learned is that um, it's so, so important to build your base of support locally, and then you kind of expand from there. And so. I didn't do that as much as I probably should have, so we're kind of going back and, and taking this as an opportunity now to really engage more of our, our local base of support. Uh, and so, being here in Carleton, we feel is a, a really good, a really good choice to to kind of really start to engage those folks. So, come out and see us. Have you noticed a big difference since moving to the new location in terms of clientele? Uh, yes, I mean the numbers are up, um, but this was a a different winery, so so a lot of folks are still coming here looking for that winery, Carlton Cellars, um, which still does make some wine here, but. Um, different price point, different focus as far. I mean, some of the same varietals, and so that's. Um, so it takes some time, and you know, what's interesting is that when you change locations, um, or if you're a new brand, so obviously you would be starting out your first location, the, the I guess the, uh, the challenges are the same, which is that it takes people a while. It's like they may drive by, I would say the number is probably like three times, three or four times, where they like look at the sign and they go, hey honey, uh, you know, oh look, look at that, there's another winery there. And then you'll go past for another six months or a year and maybe see the sign a couple more times. And then the activation energy is only reached after a certain critical number of views, you know, and then you go, hey, we, let's go in there, you know, that looks cool. Or, you know, if you have people out here, you know, the, having this outside seating has been really good. So, yeah, we've done we've done all right, all things considered. Uh, we had some different thoughts. We wanted to offer a couple different tasting concepts, so we wanted to have something that was very uh, low barrier to entry, where you could kind of graze is the term that I like to use, which would be child's play. And then for tendril, it would be more of the seated tasting, where you're actually being taken through, mm -hmm. you know, that five course meal type of experience. So. Um, so yeah, we're seeing more people, um, but it's a it's a build. It's a slow slow build, but hopefully over time it it, it uh, builds momentum. And you know we've prioritized engaging our neighbors and and trying to stay on their radar and stuff. So so yeah, so far so good. What would your words of wisdom or advice be to someone who was interested in, in joining the Oregon wine industry? Joining? Absolutely. I mean. I would say the bottom line is that you can never have enough good people, ever. So I would only qualify it that I would say that to them if they were a good person, you know. <laughs> and they were going to bring some, they had the energy and the drive and the want to. You know, the great thing about this area 
you know, coming from the frugal Midwest, you know, and there's many of us here. Um, I could name, and you probably know them all, uh, in inordinate amount of folks from Wisconsin that are in the Oregon wine business uh, or have originated there. And uh, but. But it's still accessible. I mean, there's so many places that, you know, that have been priced out that, you know, I mean, trying to do it in Napa or Sonoma is is just so much more, you know, from a from an investment standpoint or, you know, initial cash investment is, is so much more difficult. I mean, you can still, I'm sure it's still happening there. I mean, I know it's happening there, but, but I think it's happening more here. And so you can kind of, you can do it, you know, with, uh, with very little, you know, from a financial standpoint here. And I think that's kind of cool. And largely, I mean, when you look around, yeah, there's a lot more vineyards than there used to be, but there's so much more potential here. I mean, it's, we're, we're really only scratched the surface. And, and so there's a, there's a lot more to come. You know, I, my wife and I own a vineyard about a mile out of town. And it's a little bit of a non-traditional site in that, you know, we're probably around 250 feet of elevation. You know, we've got a lot of, uh, you know, there's filberts in the area and hay and, and uh, you know, grain and other stuff being grown out there. But these transitional properties, um, as far as, uh, you know, transitioning from other crops into grapes, um, there's so much of that land out there. Oh, my God. You know, and it's like, I mean, and 10, 15 percent of that shifting is a huge impact as far as, you know, the number of vineyards. And then. There's still a lot of hillsides as well. So, I mean, there's there's just, there's a lot of change that's taken place. There's a lot more to come. And so to me, that's exciting. You know, as long as, um, as long as, again, they're of the right mindset that's going to help to collectively benefit our region, you know, I'd say, come on in. You know, most, re yeah, not that recently now, but six or seven years ago when Jackson family came up here, I mean, that was a big deal. And, you know, and, I now do a little bit of work from the, for them, a couple of projects, which I'm, I'm very excited about. I mean, fantastic vineyard sites and just, I mean, great opportunity. Um, but even before any of that took place, I mean, my thinking was this is a, this is a pivotal, I mean, this is one of those landmark events or, you know, milestone events, you know, right? Um, where you have, a, 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 you know, one of the, the bigs, if you will, down in California coming up here. And, and partnering with our region up here, and it's and, and it's been a really great fit. You know, they've they've really um, understood what the opportunities are, and I think done a, a superlative job of that. So, which is which is great. You know, and there were a lot of people that had different thoughts on that. And you know, for me, again, as long as you're coming in with the right mindset, if you're not going to be you know discounting our region, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, because if you're not if you're not growing. I mean, or you know, if you're not if you're not building awareness and growing as a region, you're moving the other direction. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the the wine auction, the Willamette um, barrel auction, which I'm one of the committee members on, a uh, very good example of that. You know, so we need to promote our region, you know, because everybody else is. And if we're not promoting. Uh, the Willamette Valley, then we're losing ground. I mean, there's there's just no doubt about it. So we need to continue to do that. And it doesn't mean we need to be 10 times as big, but we need to stay relevant. We just need to stay in front of people. And there's lots of folks that are very happy to come and eat our lunch. You know, if I look back to when I, in some of the early days in Serene, you know, California was still trying to crack the code on Pinot Noir. You know, there were a couple of places where it worked, but largely it really wasn't happening. And over the last 15, 20 years now, it's like, it's been insane. I mean, but so many people came up and were like, 
trying to study what we were doing up here and it's like lo and behold i think some of the most interesting regions they look a hell of a lot like oregon you know it's like they're more coastal you know the sonoma coast area the san Rita hills i mean it's like and and you know fantastic that's great so the bar is being raised and oregon's contributed you know even if tangentially so i think that's i think that's great well, that's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Is there anything we didn't cover today that we should have covered? Uh, what's the discount you get? No. I'm just, kidding. <laughs> just kidding. We'll hash that out later. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, nothing I could think of. Hey, Karen. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's probably a good place to stop. Well, thank you so much for your time today, for your stories, for your hospitality under the apple tree here. This is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. We really appreciate it, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Yeah, hopefully I didn't, didn't muck it up for you. No, no, no. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.